is relative, right? I mean, here we are sitting in the U.S. struggling to pay for gas to drive our three-quarter ton trucks to Walmart. But in Ukraine, people are running towards the border with a suitcase in one hand and a toddler in the other. The images and stories shocking our conscience, moment by moment, are heart-wrenching. To think here I am about to eat some tasty nachos and watch some Netflix and plan my spring break while lives are crashing in Eastern Europe. I feel helpless and embarrassed. Who are these Ukrainians? What makes them made of such tough metal? They are fighting against a world power with a gun and a love of their land. We hear the stories of the grandma chastising a Russian soldier and then reminding him to keep a sunflower seed in his pocket so when he leaves her land, a.k.a. dead, a sunflower will grow. There's hope there. Hope. Hope for a future. We watch a president, an ex-actor, comedian, and Jewish man named Zelensky refuse to fly to safety and instead fight with his Ukrainian brothers. What an incredible leader. The Ukrainian people are my hope right now. They give me the spark I've desperately needed in the last three years, a need to stand up for something truly meaningful, or maybe just to know there is some real meaning to life out there somewhere. I'm not trying to be existential. But where does this fight come from? This is Christina, and for this edition of One Thing, I thought I'd go back to the hagiographies and of the saints to find the true charism that resides in a people and with the Ukrainians. We can go back to the first woman named Olga. The true story surrounding St. Olga of Kiev is going to make you actually question the requirements for being a saint. Olga, born around 900, was married to Igor, the prince of Kiev, and they had one son. The Rus area then was very, very large and, of course, had grown by taking from others. That's, that's the way it was done. And the prince was not well liked by a group called the Drevlians. They had quit paying tribute when the previous prince had died, and this kind of upset Igor and upset him enough to make a visit. During that visit, they murdered him by bending down two birch trees to his feet and then tying the trees to his legs, and then kapow, they split him in two. Olga was not a happy widow, to say the least. And to add insult on insult, the Drevlians sent emissaries to Olga to persuade her to marry their Prince Mal. They had really no idea what kind of woman they were dealing with. The first group of emissaries she buried alive. Then she lured a second group to her, and she proceeded to burn them all in a locked bathhouse. But the third time, she announced she would be arriving and was hoping for a wedding feast to be prepared for her. 
While the Drevlians prepared the feast and, of course, ate and drank themselves merry waiting for her, her soldiers came in and slaughtered 5,000 Drevlians. Now, the remaining Drevlians, you know, the regular guys, knew she would probably be soon slaughtering them, so they begged for mercy. Her reply was, okay, just send three pigeons and three sparrows from each house as an offering of a tribute. And they thought, fair enough. I mean, we don't have any money at all to give to her. But birds, we've got a plenty. And so when she got the birds, she tied cloths filled with sulfur to their feet, and she released them to fly back to their homes, which then all started on fire, and everyone died. All hail the queen of defiance. All hail the queen of vengeance. But does this act qualify for sainthood? No, which is a good no right there. She later actually converted to Christianity, and then she tried to convert the people around her and to Christianity as well. And that, that got her into the club. Her son, however, he, he stayed pagan. To me, Olga exemplifies the true spirit that we are seeing on the streets of Kiev today. In fact, maybe that sunflower grandma is a direct descendant of Olga. They just seem to be cut from the same cloth. The next important Ukrainian saint is Saint Vladimir I of Kiev. He's actually Olga's grandson. Olga's Christianity did not rub off on Vlad. I mean, it didn't even rub off on Vlad's father. He just really liked paganism and his 800 concubines. But he felt something was missing, and he wondered if it was religion. So he sent envoys all over the world to investigate and report back stories about the Muslims and the Jews and the Christians. But he was really unimpressed by what he heard. But one envoy went to Constantinople and came back and reported that, quote, he was not sure he was in heaven or on earth. And that hooked Vladimir. So Vladimir traveled to Constantinople and did typical government stuff. Basil needed help to avoid a siege on his capital. And so Vlad agreed in exchange of marriage. And then Basil required him to be baptized and asked him that he would bring the faith to his people. Now, I just have to tell you that this baptism, even though he's in Constant Constantinople, was thought to have taken place in the Crimean Peninsula because there's a little church on the spot of the baptism called St. Vladimir's Cathedral. Just in case you guys travel to Crimea. Eh, I don't know, maybe this summer? Doubtfully. Anyway, Vlad agreed to this as well, and he even took the name Basil as his Christian name. And then Vladimir gave him 6,000 troops. When Vladimir came home to Kiev, he brought a wife and he brought Christianity to his people. First, he baptized his sons and all of the richer nobility, and he burned 
all of the pagan statues. Second, he urged all of his people in Kiev, quote, rich and poor and beggars and slaves, end quote, to come to the river on the following day. And then Vladimir baptized them all in the Dnieper River. His conversion did solidify his relationship with the Byzantine Empire. It brought Greek learning and book culture, and Vlad then began to build in that same Byzantine manner. He actually built the very first stone church called the Church of the Tithes, where he and his wife's bodies would repose after death. Ta-da! Instant Christianity and Rus. Okay, I'm just kidding. Because paganism, of course, continued for a while. You just can't eliminate something that quickly. And lastly, St. Chetesky. I'm probably saying it wrong, but just give me some mercy today. This saint, he was called also Metropolitan Chetesky. And Metropolitan is also a word for bishop. Metropolitan also had a brother who was a Ukrainian Catholic priest, and both of these men are quite important in Ukrainian history. But Metropolitan, we'll talk about him. After he became a priest, he really pushed himself into building up the Ukrainian church. This was in 1900, and this was super important to him. However, one of his greatest sorrows was that there were actually so many different churches in the Ukraine. He actually wanted them all to become one, which would be the Ukrainian Catholic Church, because he believed in unity. So this was his thing. He was really pushing for this. But during the time that he was a bishop, during World War I, and then, of course, World War II came along, he fought for the freedom of the Ukraine and the rights of the Ukrainian Catholic Church. And in that short period, by the way, the Ukraine was invaded and ruled first by Tsarist Russia, then the Polish, then the Soviets, then the Germans, and finally by communism. Those who took over the country were not kind to the Ukrainian Catholic Church. Some of them did not believe in God at all. There were even times when Metropolitan was imprisoned just for speaking out against these godless people. He was imprisoned when the Polish government didn't like him speaking out about injustice in Poland. And he got in trouble by the Soviets, go figure, for speaking out during the Great Famine. His faith was seriously rooted in social justice. Oh, I love this guy. And he traveled all over the Ukraine trying to keep this Ukrainian spirit alive. During World War II, he even rescued and hid multiple Jewish people. Eventually, communism brought the church down, and I think we all kind of know that, and Metropolitan's biggest fear was the end of the church. And during that time, they call it Ukraine's Church of Silence. This was the time that people prayed and studied in secret. You see, you can't get rid of religion. You can only just get rid of a church. These three saints typify that spirit of the Ukraine. Just last month, the patriarch of Russian Orthodox Church said these words, and he directed them to Putin. Quote, the Ukrainian and Russian people came out of the Dnieper baptismal font 
And the war between these people is a repetition of the sin of Cain, who killed his own brother out of envy. Such a war has no justification either from God or from people. So, back to my original point. The Ukrainian people's religion is deeply rooted in their land and in that Dnieper River. So they are never going to let it go. And I give them a whole lot of credit for that. Let's today offer up a prayer for the strong Ukrainians and their fighting spirit. Let's pray that their fierce love of God and their generational ties to the land and that river will hold them safe. In the words of Pope Francis, let us ask the Lord to grant that the country of Ukraine may grow in the spirit of brotherhood and that all hurts, fears, and divisions will be overcome. Amen.